I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 153, the U.S. Senate versus Twitter, or violating the First Amendment versus violating the spirit of the First Amendment. Well, in the last couple of days, as here in the United States, we are counting down almost now by the hour to the most important election in the history of our country. But while that has been going on, the U.S. Senate, the Senate Commerce Committee, to be more exact, has been grilling the CEOs of Twitter, Facebook, and Google. And you won't be surprised to hear, I think that's raising some profound First Amendment issues. So I talked to my class, my Freedom of Expression graduate class, just last night about this. And obviously all of the classes these days are conducted through Zoom. And I recorded my lecture, so I'm going to play that lecture for you. It's almost 45 minutes. We really dig into this issue in all kinds of ways. You won't hear any students. I keep them out of this part of the recording to protect their privacy. But you'll hear me going into all kinds of legal arguments and histories and nooks and crannies on what I think is a very important issue. So that's coming up for you right now. The Light on Light Through podcast. Okay, so let's get now to something that's not just my pet peeve. It's something that a lot of people are concerned about one way or another. I think I said, yeah, I don't think I know. I remember I, it just happened yesterday. I sent you a link to uh, one of many articles about the CEOs of Google, Twitter, and Facebook appearing before the Senate being grilled about what they're doing on their sites. Now, obviously, you may recall it was just last week that we talked about the U.S. government's going after Google uh, on anti-monopoly grounds. Uh, so I'm not going to go into that again. What these hearings are about, the ones that are going on now, obviously, all these things are related. But in particular, these hearings are much more straight up First Amendment issues. Because, and we've talked a little bit about this, but I just want to mention it again. And obviously with the election on Tuesday ending, who knows what's going to happen in the future. But in terms of where we stand now, as you may recall, and I mentioned this earlier, but just to sort of bring this up to date and tie it into these hearings uh, before the Senate Commerce Committee. You may recall we talked here in the class about the Communications Decency Act. And you may recall my annoyance with Bill Clinton for signing that into law, even though he said he disagreed with it. A man was arrested because he published an essay online in which he cursed out Congress for passing that law. It was clearly a political statement. He was nonetheless arrested because it had objectionable language. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and in a rare good, in my view, judgment on 
First Amendment issues, the Supreme Court struck down that part of the Communications Decency Act because they said back then that the internet was like a newspaper and just like you can't find a newspaper because it publishes something that might curse out Congress, uh, you can't do that with an, an internet, in effect, newspaper. Now, you might ask, why is it okay to use that language on the internet, but it wasn't okay for WBAI to play George Carlin's Seven Dirty Words routine? The answer that the Supreme Court based its second decision, this 1990, late 1990s decision, in contrast to the early 1980s decision about George Carlin, the Supreme Court based it completely on this idea that when you turn on the radio, you have no knowledge of what you're going to hear on the radio. But when you log on to a site, you know what that site will show you. Now, bear in mind, this was before Twitter and Facebook, so they were not talking about social media where you don't know what you're going to see on Twitter. But they were claiming that just like when, if you buy a pornographic newspaper or a magazine, I don't know the pornographic newspapers, if you buy, you know, Playboy, the people who buy Playboy know why they're buying it. In my case, it was always to read the very intelligent articles. By the way, that's not as stupid a joke as it seems because one of the best interviews that was ever published anywhere with McLuhan, and he didn't give very good interviews, is the Playboy interview from the late 1960s. One of the best explications of McLuhan's work was in Playboy. So for media theorists, that, that old joke actually has a true bottom line. Uh, but, but that's what the reasoning was of the Supreme Court. That's why they said if, if somebody wants to log on, they did have porn sites in the 1990s. If somebody wants to log on to a porn site, that's their decision. They know what they're getting into. They're not going to be surprised by hearing George Collin or somebody else, you know, cursing on the radio. But what is not often known, I mean, it might be known, but it's not that often talked about, is there were many parts to the Communications Decency Act. And now an aspect of it, which by and large, every once in a while, people start talking about it, but now it's being talked about again, is Section 230 in that act, which again, we've mentioned here several times. And again, just to be clear, the Supreme Court did not strike down the complete act. They just struck down the part of the act that fined, and potentially you could be thrown in jail for a couple of years, someone who published something objectionable online. That part was struck down. That's still the case today. But Another very important part of the Communications Decency Act, which wasn't struck down, and this is what the Senate hearings going on right now are all about, is in this Section 230. You can look it up uh, on Google. Uh, to make a long story short, you know, it has a lot of legal gobbledygook. What it amounts to is that the site, meaning 
Twitter or Facebook cannot be held liable even in a civil court for anything online that someone sues over. Who then is held liable? The person or entity or company or organization that makes the post. Not Twitter, not Google, not Facebook, not Instagram, not good old TikTok. But if there's a problem with a post, let's say, for example, I say on Twitter that someone is a stone cold murderer and there's lots of evidence for this. Twitter cannot be held responsible for that post. I would be the person who was held responsible under Section 230. So that's what it was supposed to do. But that's what Section 230 was supposed to do. And it won't come as any surprise to you that that was something that I always agreed with. Because again, I don't like the government holding anybody, whether people or organizations, responsible for what they say. And I certainly don't want the central site responsible, because I think that could lead to a diminishing of important political commentary and discourse. But as often happens in law and in media evolution, and when the two are combined and intertwined, this Section 230 has now taken a very interesting twist. And here's what that twist is. What Twitter and Facebook and even Google, but it's primarily Twitter and Facebook. I don't even know why they had Google down there at the hearings. I think it's just because the government is trying to get the three biggest corporate entities uh, down to the Senate. Why, by the way, didn't they have Jeff Bezos from Amazon? That is an interesting question. He's like the richest guy in the world and Amazon controls a lot of communication also. That's another story. But what the, these Senate hearings are primarily about is, as we've talked here in class, Facebook and Twitter have been actively not allowing posts that they deem to have false information. And to revisit this once again, and you know, I, 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 the reason why I keep revisiting this is I want each of you to keep thinking about it, maybe refine your views, because this, it's a very complex and it's an omnipresent topic, meaning it never goes away. It's never too far from the surface. The issue here is that Twitter is saying if there's a statement that's made by even the president of the United States, which is false politically, Twitter reserves the right to take that post down. It, Twitter is saying, and Facebook is saying the same, that they don't have, they think, the moral or legal obligation 
to post things that they know are false. Now, this goes beyond what I've been saying. You may recall my position is if it's some kind of drug, if it's some kind of physical object that either people consume or use, they can seriously hurt themselves, a medication, a motor vehicle, whatever, then I'm in favor of that not being allowed. You don't need, though, the FCC and the Communications Decency Act there. That would come under the Federal Trade Commission, which already has restrictions on false advertising. But the FTC almost never, ever goes after politically false advertising. So what has happened is the Senate committee is looking into chastising and punishing and regulating Facebook and Twitter and Google if they take down a post by Trump or any post that they think is politically false. Now, the problem here is what do we mean by politically false and where can you draw the line or make a really clear distinction between politically false advertising and health risk advertising? So here's an example. And as a matter of fact, now that I think about it, I, mean, I hate to even disseminate this, but I, I saved it. And uh, if there's a way on Facebook, I got some kind of video like in a, in a message from my Instagram account. And it's a pretty shocking video. What it is, is an anti-vaccine video. And it's an interview with a, a woman I never heard of her. She claims she's a doctor and has you know, been well published and so on. And I've never in my life even heard anything like this. And I have no idea why they sent me this video. I don't know the person who sent it to me. But the video basically argues that nobody should take the vaccine and let themselves be injected with the vaccines that are now being prepared to fight the COVID pandemic. Okay, what are the reasons that are presented? It's not that the vaccine won't work. Part of the argument was they're not necessary. You know, only a small percentage of people in the world population have died of it, that whole thing. But listen to this. The essence of this video is that the Gates Foundation, which indeed has donated an enormous amount of money towards developing some vaccines, they have put into the vaccine a nanotechnology so that once you're injected in the vaccine, Bill Gates or anyone else can track you. It's like a GPS device that you're going to have in your DNA, in your system, in your RNA. I mean, it's a good science fiction story, right? So that is a, an interesting example. I think that video should be not allowed on Twitter and Facebook. And interestingly, it was not posted publicly because Facebook would have put it down, would have taken it down. It was sent to me privately. 
And again, I have no idea if I can capture it. I guess, yeah, you can capture any video. So what I'll do is I'll capture it and send it to you like in the next day to just so you can see how crazy some of these things are. But the point is that video mixes together some serious, as in life and death, health issues. Like, do you need the vaccine or not? You know, what does it mean that most people don't die? That's a reason not to take the vaccine. It mixes that into a basically a political nightmare fantasy about the, the vaccine being something that comes with in addition to whatever, you know, the DNA of the virus, which basically provokes our body to manufacture antibodies. That's how vaccines work. But it mixes that in with this scenario of the vaccine is going to carry with it these nanobots which are going to be in our body for the rest of our lives and make us trackable everywhere we go. I think a completely paranoid, insane thing. If somebody put that up, aside from the vaccine, if somebody said, you know, I'm concerned that Bill Gates is trying to develop some nanobots that he's going to use to embed in everyone and therefore be able to track everyone. I don't know why Bill Gates would want to do that. They're singling out Bill Gates because he is uh, donating a lot of money towards the vaccine. But if that's all that was posted, that wouldn't really be per se a threat to health. But mixed into an anti-vaccination thesis, that does become a threat to health. And frankly, and I have no proof of this whatsoever, but you know, I, when you think about these things, you connect them to other things. You know how Trump has been saying for like four years, I just heard him say it recently again, it's a, he doesn't say it all the time, but like, you know, usually like once every couple of days, he throws in that he was being spied on by the CIA and the FBI way back during the 2016 campaign, and he still is, and no one realizes it, but they're spying on him all the time. And, you know, when I was thinking about this, like, nanobot in vaccinations, in a way, that is something that relates directly to what Trump was saying. Interestingly, though, Trump says he's in favor of vaccines, and the anti-vaxxers, uh, although Trump might have allied with them, he's not, you know, with them now. So this is just, you know, one of, of many examples, and it remains to be seen what the Senate is going to do. What many people are calling upon the Senate to do is say, look, under the Communications Decency Act, sites like Facebook and Twitter are in no way responsible or liable for what's posted. Therefore, it is wrong for them to take down something that they think is harmful to the public. Or in the case of Twitter and Facebook now, something that they think is not maybe physically harmful, although it could be, but is politically false. So that's like an interesting twist on this act of the Communications Decency Act and the, the aspect of it that was basically relieving 
places like, again, they didn't exist. Google existed back then, but Facebook and Twitter didn't exist back then. But, but the act from the, from the mid to late 1990s, that's when it was drafted and passed and signed into law. That act has been deemed by most lawyers to apply to the social media, meaning that they're not responsible for things that are posted there. So if they're not responsible, why then do they feel it's necessary to remove something? And what are we talking about by the something? Political things or political things and health-related information? That is information that's dangerous to people's health or just things that are dangerous to people's health. Let me just throw in another point here, and then uh, if any of you have any thoughts or questions, I'd, I'd be happy to discuss it further before we move on to our next topic. Most people, including me, uh, you know, I have said, and I said tonight, and I said previously, I think that things that are dangerous to people's health should not just be posted online, but as we all know, for a long, long, long time, there have been commercials for beer on television and even stronger drinks. So you might say, well, so what's the matter with that? Having a beer or a glass of wine, how is that dangerous to someone's health? Well, it's not dangerous to most people's health, but it's not good for an alcoholic to see like a scintillating commercial, people guzzling down beer or sipping wine. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, and this is another whole aspect of this, I just want to mention this, uh, and this again is not the FCC, it's the FTC. Once upon a time, one of the main springs of television advertising were cigarette commercials. And by the late 1950s into the early 1960s, there were numerous scientific studies that smoking cigarettes uh, were responsible. It was not the only factor. Pollution, other things, later on genetic predispositions. But smoking cigarettes was one of the factors that increased the likelihood that you might get lung cancer. And they also threw in heart disease and other things as well. And so the American Tobacco Company tried to fight back. They put filters on cigarettes. They claimed the scientific studies were wrong. But one thing about scientific studies, they're often repeated. And if they're repeated often enough and they come up with the same results and they're done by different people, there's no reason to want to support what the earlier studies did, but they do support that science concludes that this then is a valid finding. So by the mid to late 1960s, it was generally agreed that smoking leads to a higher incidence of lung cancer. And the first thing that was insisted is that cigarette ads had this proviso. And eventually cigarette ads were taken off the air completely. And all that was left were anti-cigarette ads, showing you how bad cigarettes are. Now, here's something that I always uh, like to mention, and uh, but you know, 
it's hard to find uh, references to it. It happened a long time ago. You're welcome to look for it. But I know this is true because I remember reading it in the 1960s, early 1970s. Wine consumption in France is much higher than it is here per capita. I mean, in France, they love wine so much, they give it to babies instead of milk. That's actually true. Anyway, and the French authorities were getting worried about this. So they produced a series of commercials warning people not to drink so much. And, you know, you can imagine what they were. They showed people having a good time at a party, getting drunk out of their minds, and then like, you know, going out into the street and not watching where they were going, getting hit by a car. You know, bad things happened to people who got drunk. And the French government put a lot of money into these commercials. So a year or two later, they did a survey to see if the commercial had any effect. And what they found was wine consumption had increased after showing these commercials, meaning people who were inclined to enjoy a glass of wine, which was just about everybody in France, when they saw a commercial of people getting drunk out of their mind, having a great time, they tuned out what happened at the end of the commercial. It made them think, hey, I'm going to have a glass of wine. I may go get a glass of wine right now, just even talking about this. But that's what the commercial did. So in other words, there's no predicting how people are going to react to commercials. There's another example of this. A long time after that, here in the United States, it may have been worldwide. I don't know if any of you heard of this. There was a beer that came out called Gablinger's Beer. And it was not only low calorie, that's been the case for a while. It also had no alcohol in it. So this beer was for people who didn't want to drink alcohol, but you could have the pleasure of enjoying a beer without alcohol. It made sense, right? They had a huge ad campaign. That company went out of business pretty quickly because the results of the ad campaign were it, it got people in the mood to drink beer. Because again, it showed people out oh, in a bar having a great time. Someone's drinking Gablingers. Nobody went out and bought Gablingers. The poor company went out of business. All that happened is beer drinking from regular beers with alcohol content increased. So you never can predict what happens uh, with commercials. But my point is, the FTC on television has for a long time regulated commercials, which they think, if unregulated, could lead to the public being seduced into doing things that are dangerous to them. Once again, to be clear, and just to put this into context, the commercial that is a political commercial, and there obviously have been political commercials on television, in case you didn't know, on the medium of television since the Eisenhower-Stevenson 1952 campaign. And some people think that that helped Ike win by such a huge margin. You can, it sounds like a stupid little song to me, but uh, if you Google it, you can hear it on YouTube. I'll give you my little rendition of it, okay? First of all, it was a cartoon. It was like a bunch of like stupid little cartoon characters, and they were singing and dancing to this. I like Ike, 
you like Ike, we like Ike, the president, everyone, I like Ike. So, you know, that's going to get someone to vote for a political candidate. I don't get it. Okay. Admittedly, it's not my kind of music. I don't know whose kind of music it even was back then. You know, like a bunch of idiotic little cartoon figures. But that was, you know, the beginning of political advertising. No one said, hey, that commercial can't be aired on television because what do you mean everybody likes Ike, right? That's politically false. That is factually false. Not everyone likes Ike. Some people like Ike. A lot of people like Ike. Not everyone. So by the standard that you can't have anything that's not true, I like Ike would have been taken off television. Then as long as we're on this subject and sooner or later you're going to come across this, you can see this on YouTube also. Just search for Tony Schwartz, Adam Bob, okay? Or Tony Schwartz, 1964 election. This is the presidential election in 1964. This didn't feature Ike anymore. This basically was an election between Lyndon Johnson, vice president of America, who became president when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and then LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, was running for president in his own right in 1964, Democrat, and opposed to him was Barry Goldwater, a Republican. And you often hear Barry Goldwater's name mentioned uh, nowadays for a couple of reasons. First of all, Johnson beat Goldwater in a landslide, probably mostly because people wanted to support him because they appreciated how he was able to step up in those tragic circumstances of JFK being assassinated. But also because America was not as far right as Goldwater. You, hear, you now hear some people saying that they expect the Democrats, when the votes are counted next Tuesday, and I hope not much longer than that, they, some people expect the Democrats to do as well in the 2020 election as the Democrats did in the 1964 election. Well, one of the things that played a role in this election, even though it was only aired once and then it was taken down, but it was like still spread around and a lot of people saw it, was a commercial that Tony Schwartz did. Tony Schwartz was a, not a literal student of McLuhan. He didn't study under Marshall McLuhan, but he had read McLuhan's work. He understood his work. He was also an audio engineer. And he was a brilliant producer. I met him several times. He lived in a brownstone in which he had his studio uh, on the West 50s in Manhattan. And he produced this commercial in which you see a little girl in a field counting flowers. And, you know, then you hear like a voiceover, five, four, three, two, one, and... What happens at one is an atom bomb blows up and you don't see how little it blows up, but this little girl picking flowers, when they reach one, you see like a mushroom cloud rising and the commercial is saying, this is what you'll get if you vote for Barry Goldwater. Now CBS, I think, aired that commercial once and then they thought that commercial was unfair to Goldwater 
And, you know, that's like sort of pushing the limits, but the commercial was never banned anywhere, even though, in all fairness to Barry Goldwater, even though I didn't agree with any of his views, he was not saying he wanted to start a nuclear war. It, it is just, you know, it was like a logical argument that if you follow his policies, it could lead to a nuclear war. This poor little girl sitting in a meadow picking petals off a daisy and counting them will be a victim of that. So, I mean, the, the, the political view was fine, but surely no one thought that, you know, this is exactly what Goldwater wanted to happen. And over the years, we've seen, you know, commercials over and over again that present things that are not true. And frankly, I don't want to get too far off in a discussion on this, but as you know, I mean, I think every time just about Trump opens his mouth, he says something that's not true, whether it's a commercial or a rally or whatever. That's not stopping anybody from airing that, although if it's a live news show and they're playing a clip, the, the news commentator will point out if that's not true. So... My point here is that if you look at television as a model, there has long been acceptance of falsity in political expression on television. So if that's the case, why should we pay attention to as a problem that the social media, Twitter, and Facebook are airing, or airing is a broadcast word, allowing to go up on the screens of people who access them, either by laptop or smartphone, statements that are false. Falsity in political campaigns is as old as political campaigns. So that being said, I also, so I, I agree actually with Republicans like Ted Cruz, one of the few times I agree with Republicans, I agree with them that uh, there's no need for Twitter and Facebook to take those false ads down, assuming they don't deal with health issues. And again, that's very complicated. But I don't think the the response to that is to say if Twitter and Facebook continue to take those ads down, that the government will punish them for taking those ads down because that's, again, the government violating the First Amendment. In other words, it's like a double or triple-edged sword. But ultimately, if we agree that we want to keep the government out of communication, that means the government shouldn't even be allowed to punish media for doing something that we might think is wrong. So my last point on this before I turn this over to you, I think it's wrong for Twitter and Facebook to take down purely political ads, but I think it's more wrong for the government to punish them for doing that. Why? And this is like really an interesting classical juxtaposition of something that I've talked to you about before. What it does is it pits violating the spirit of the First Amendment against violating 
the First Amendment. And again, to give a specific example, Twitter taking down a post it finds politically misleading. In my view, Twitter is violating the spirit of the First Amendment. Twitter is not the government. Twitter can do whatever it wants vis-a-vis -vis the posts on this system. But the government coming in and punishing Twitter for doing that, that is explicitly violating the First Amendment because you have the government coming in, punishing a medium, trying to tell, in this case, a social medium, what it can and cannot do. So that's how I would rule if I were on the Supreme Court, if that ever came, but I'll never be on the Supreme Court. I, I do want to just throw in one other point here. Fortunately for you, this class, because I just came across this book a week or two ago, and I didn't want to, and I wouldn't assign a book to you this late in the term. But I will send you a link to it, and you can consider it optional reading. There is a media theorist who now is in Canada. He comes from Russia uh, in the first place. He teaches at York University in Toronto. His name is Andre Mir, M-I-R. And that's actually what his pen name is. His real name is a much longer last Russian name. Anyway, he has written a book that I think is best media theory book written in the last 40 years. That's how good it is. I still haven't finished reading it. I already gave him a blurb for the book. It's called Post Journalism. And one of the things that Andre talks about in the book, uh, which we haven't really talked much about here, is, but it does relate to freedom of expression. So I just want to put this last point in since I've been contrasting television versus social media, is that if you, if you look at newspapers, radio, and television, in addition to the government maybe wanting to regulate them, people like me saying we shouldn't regulate them, they already have, in addition to what they want to do, their own very strong regulating force, and that is advertising, right? The, and, and there's been more than one case where advertisers have pressured over the years television, radio, and newspapers to stop broadcasting something, to not publish something. There was a very famous case. This also goes back to the 1980s. You can look this up. In those days, the editor of the New York Post was a woman by the name of Dorothy Schiff. And she was editor for many, many years. She was publisher. Uh, also, even longer than she was editor. So she actually controlled the paper even when she wasn't editing. She owned the paper. And this is like, you know, a classic example of what happens in advertising controlled systems. The New York Post was doing an expose on supermarkets. And the way the expose was done is the reporter would go into supermarkets and find things like there were there were like there was like a product where there was like one price on it this was the price set by the distributor manufacturer and the supermarket would paste over it a higher price but it would still advertise at, at the thing at the lower price so a customer would come in saying hey i thought i was going to be able to get this cereal 
for like a dollar fifty. Why am I being charged a dollar eighty? And say, oh, sorry, you know, the price was raised. You know, by whom? Not by the company that was selling it, by the supermarket, which technically it had a right to do. They could charge whatever they wanted, but not lie about the fact, advertising that, that the price was lower in the first place, and then pretending that some other force, in this case, the manufacturer, that is, the, you know, Kellogg's, let's say, for the cornflakes, that they raised the price. So this is what the exposés in the New York Post were reporting. Well, a big supermarket was caught up in this. I'm not sure if it was A&P or Pathrite or one of those companies. They got really furious and they sent Dorothy Chef an ultimatum, which said, you better stop doing those exposés because if you continue it, you know, we're spending a lot of money advertising in your newspaper. We're not spending all that money to put our ads in, only to have somebody turn the page and see your vicious, inaccurate, so-called expose of our supermarket. So what do you think Dorothy Schiff did? Well, at first what she did was, sadly, she stopped the expose. She was concerned that the newspaper would lose too much money. But then there was such an outcry over that she decided to you know, resume the expose. My point here being that Twitter, it does have advertising, but it's not subject to that kind of advertising pressure. Again, as Andre Muir points out in his book, originally newspapers weren't like that, but beginning in the 1800s, but really going into high gear in the 1900s as in the 20th century, Advertising became the main way that newspapers survived. Advertising from the get-go was the main way television survived, right? I mean, you buy a television set, so you spend money on that, but you don't pay anything, especially in the old days for network television. The whole point was you got it for free. How then did television make its money? It was from advertising revenue. And... By the end of the 20th century, going into the 21st century, as much as 80% of the revenue that newspapers got was from advertising. Only 20% was from sales. In fact, when things really got tough for the Village Voice, and I always have like a soft spot in my heart for the Village Voice, they're the first place to publish any of my work. So they must have been doing something right. And... They were really struggling as people began reading things online. And their last ditch attempt to stay solvent was to give copies of the Village Voice away for free because it was hoping then it would increase its circulation and charge more and, and be able to get more income for its advertising. But I and everyone else knew that that was a last gasp and they would not be able to maintain that very long at all because the advertisers sensed that if, if people weren't even paying anything for the Village Voice, who's going to take it that seriously? And so a few years ago, the Village Voice finally went out of business. But Andre Mir's point in his book is when you look at social media, that's a completely different model than the advertising model on which all prior mass media are based.
Mir doesn't consider the freedom of expression issues, which we're doing here, but that's what I've just said is like a, a, a logical outgrowth of what Andre Mir writes about in his book. The, what Twitter and Facebook and Google are going through now is an example of what happens when who controls the information ordinarily on Twitter? Not even Twitter. We control the information, meaning the consumer of Twitter can tweet anytime she or he wants. And that was the model of Twitter. And that's still the model of Twitter for the most part. And that's the model of Facebook. So that ironically makes it easier for Twitter and Facebook to begin to say, we're not going to allow these kinds of tweets or posts if they're politically false. There's no advertiser that's going to complain to them, threaten them, and in effect, blackmail them, as they did with Dorothy Schiff way, way back in the, in the 1980s. But again, I think that's wrong. But longer still is the government then punishing Twitter for violating the spirit of the First Amendment. You don't try to correct a violation of the spirit of the First Amendment by violating the First Amendment to do that. That's my view in a nutshell. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little lecture, which wasn't so little. I'll be back here soon with another episode of Light On, Light Through. I'm not sure if I'll have an episode before the election. That is, before the election concludes, I hope, this coming Tuesday. Maybe I will. I certainly will have an episode shortly after about the results of the election. And, as always, I'll have... A whole bunch of episodes coming up with reviews of science fiction on television. So, in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and enjoy. AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson still code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries. 